and we're recording. Hello, everyone. Martin, my friend, how are you on this lovely, lovely Monday? Oh, hey, what's up, man?、Uh, and hello to everyone out there. Of course, like he said, I am Martin. I am. What, what do we call myself now? Martin Perfecto, the genius of love? Yes, that is what you call yourself. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, though. I'm doing spectacular. And、um, I'm feeling productive. You know, last Saturday, well, last week, I should say last week and the weekend, I got a YouTube video uploaded to our YouTube page. And I also、uh, wrote something on Medium about that conversation with、uh, those people. People that we had, that I had over text messages. <laughs> oh, yeah. My man has、yeah. been productive last week. Yeah. And the way I'm thinking about it is,、uh, you know, I think back to when I am my, my amateur boxing days, and I think about、um, the way I'm thinking about it is I'm thinking about these creative projects as fights. And what I mean by that is in, the, in amateur boxing, right? You, um, You're known by how many fights you have. Like when somebody asks you before you spar, they say, How many fights have you had? They don't ask you, Oh, what's your record? They just say, Hey, how many fights have you had? And if you have over 10 fights, or if you had 10 and above, that means you're considered in the open division, which means you can fight anybody, who,、uh, anybody else who's had 10 and above. And so I'm starting to think of the,、uh, my creative pursuits as fights. Right? That thing、mm-hmm. I, I did on Medium,、um, that's my first fight.、Yeah. Well, I want to keep fighting, man. <laughs> I want to keep hustling. It gets in your fucking blood. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I'm the type of dude too where I feel like I'm wasting my life and I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, you and me both. I find、yes. a lot of satisfaction, purpose, and contentment. Through creation, you know? Yeah.、Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's writing or note taking or video editing, sound editing, things like that. Yeah. Well, it, it, the way I see it is it's a way of leaving our mark on the world after we're gone. You might be thinking, well, who cares when you're gone? You're not even going to notice. It just gives me psychological peace. When I'm still on this planet, to know that, hey, when I pass, I'm not just like a sheep. And all I did in my life was watch TV, eat, take a dump, and go to bed and go to work. I did something else, man. And that's what I want before I die. I just want to leave my mark on this planet in a positive way, of course. You and me both. And that goes to everybody out there. Don't be a sheep, you know. Pursue your passions outside of work. You know, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Yeah. That's a problem. I, I agree, because honestly, it is those chains and those conditions that、mm-hmm. really take away the energy and motivation to, yeah. to actually fu- to do that kind of stuff. Like, when you think about it, it is a lot. Out of your life throughout the week to hold down a 40 hour job. Yes. Especially if you have a family when you get home and all that stuff. Mm hmm. Oh, and, man. And for what? Like, at the end, like when you're in your 60s or something? Yeah. Like, oh, 
because the average person lives to like what their late 70s early 80s or some number like that so here you have if you're lucky anywhere between 10 to 20 years of like quote-unquote freedom freedom yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and some people aren't even that fucking lucky Yeah, I I think it's really, uh, I think it's really an indictment on our economic system. Um, It's really an indictment because um, our work, the things we do to make a living should only be part time. And what I mean by that is um, like if you're lucky enough to where to where you your job is what you love to do, your passions. Well, you're lucky, you lucky son of a monkey. But if you are like working at Walmart, you know, like me, <laughs> if you're like working at Walmart and, you, and you're like, oh, man, I'm kind of wasting my life, man. That stuff should be part time and our passion should be full time, you know? Yeah. In a more ideal world. Like, yeah, in a more ideal world. Society um, could function just fine with everyone working part time. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but the problem is, of course those at the top of these systems these structures want us to work full-time and get a freaking ulcer and get freaking work-related injuries because we're working hard or working too much Mm -hmm. the reproducing the functions of class um have you heard of william s burroughs no no i have not so he was like a famous author and um I don't know if he was an architect or not, Um, but yeah, he was kind of like a very famous author, novelist, essayist, Uh, was around during like the Beat Generation, you know, kind of like Beat Nicks and shit. Actually has a very relevant quote that I sometimes think about quite a bit, and it goes, what does the money machine eat? It eats youth, spontaneity. Life, beauty, and above all else, it eats creativity. Yeah. It yeah. eats it eats quality and shits out quantity. Mm. I wonder if he's meaning I wonder if they're meaning people in that in that respect. Um You mean like the it, last like sentence? it eats the yeah, like it eats the quality it eats <laughs> You know, quality people and just makes turns them into a number, I guess. I think it's more along the lines of, um, you know, the whole system, like, consumes the best parts of ourselves, you know, like our potential, in order to just produce more and more shit. Yeah. Things we, yeah, that we don't need. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what, uh, speaking of this topic too, one of the things that's really been inspiring me of late is the series on Hulu called Wu-Tang American Saga. Oh, tell me about it. And uh, wh- why does it's really inspiring, like even if you don't like rap music, but because of the fact that you got these uh, these teenagers and young men in Staten Island, New York, in the late 80s, early 90s, and their home lives are in disarray. Um, You're talking about homelessness, you're talking about violence, you're talking about drugs, 
and to cope with their home lives and also support their families, right? There's a there's they have to drug deal. Like it's not a it's not a situation of morality, it's a situation of necessity. So mm-hmm. but but in be, but outside of that, right, they never lose sight of their goal or their passion. And their passion is making music, like uh Bobby's passion, who is Rizza. His passion is music and he never loses sight of that, despite the fact that um he has to sell drugs to, uh, you know, pay the rent. His big brother goes to jail. He has to sell more drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his crack spot that he sells drugs out of gets burned down by rival rival crack dealers. So he has to sell weed and get his hustle on like that. But in the midst of that, though, he, in his mind, he's just thinking about beats and producing and rap and hip hop all day. And he's uh, he's and he surrounds himself with people who are also um, have that mentality too, where it's like, yeah, I got talent and flowing and rapping and going, but I have to do the things I have to do to survive, you know? And that's why it's so inspiring is that we may have to do things we have to do to survive and things that we hate, but never lose sight of that goal of going forward for it. Um, You know, when you go home from your job, Think about things you can do to be productive instead of just staying in front of a TV all day. I mean, TV is good, but don't make it like the end goal of your day. That kind of stuff. You know, like, I agree to an extent. And here's why. Um, Or at least the point where I disagree. Oh, yeah. Is that I kind of wish we lived in a world where we were not so fixated with being productive. Oh, okay. Because usually, I feel like that's coming from more like our like American sensibility of, you know, mm. if you're not being productive, you're being idle, right? Yeah. And then when yeah. you really think about it, <laughs> like, that's a pretty recent idea, at least in terms yeah. of like, human history i mean you could oh, yeah. you could see it in the puritans back then but that was like 400 years ago right or oh yeah especially with the that. industrial revolution as well yeah, these, yeah especially with that these kind like this kind of mindset seems to have like emerged from the, like the onset or the intermingling of like protestant christianity mm-hmm. and the emergence of capitalism but oh yeah when they melted together it's a fucking monster yeah like when you think about it though too like were our super far-flung ancestors who are still hunter-gatherers like were they as productive as we are i mean granted their lives were pretty fucking hard in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. on the other hand um they didn't work as much as us turns out um, yeah, they probably had sh- they probably had stronger social con- ties. Yeah, and yeah. one one of the common things that Europeans kind of held in contempt about like indigenous peoples they colonized was that they thought they were like too idle and lazy mm, because they yeah. weren't you know living in a society where productivity was seen as working on a farm, yeah, working on a plantation, working agriculture. Or like making that. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I guess what I mean by productivity is just uh, pursuing your passions in life. Yeah. Don't let it. Don't let those things, especially things you can't control, snuff out your passion in mm. life. Yeah, and depending on what you're wanting to do, I mean yeah. that takes quote unquote work to achieve. Yeah, I'm not gonna deny that. I'm not gonna say that's bad. I think it's more like the mindset of I must be productive or you know i'm wasting away and you mm -hmm. know for me and you we're both pretty active guys right we're if we're not physically active we're looking for something to stimulate us in other ways oh whether, yeah mentally especially intellectually yeah yeah and i think those are like very very good things to have i think like i said before my only opposition is like the grind set <laughs> you know the grind culture and shit like that i think yeah that well that's your mindset yeah especially <laughs> that grind mindset it's super shallow and it's super uh capitalist oriented because what they're really talking about those people who who have that kind of mindset they're talking about like entrepreneurs and starting a business i'm like yeah you need <laughs> to work like 200 hours a week yeah if yeah. you're not working hard, actually, and it's something like my cousin shared on Twitter that I saw. It was either Twitter or Facebook. I don't remember. And it was like one of those uh, letters to the editor kind of things and some like design, like a designer website. Yeah. And the lady who was kind of like the editor and author of the piece that he was rightfully responding to as dog shit um, was basically saying... Like, when you're young and you're in your career, you have to, like, basically work harder than others are working. And if you're not working as hard or harder than them, then you're not doing enough. And you need yeah. to question, you know, like, how committed are you to this career? And when I think about mm -hmm. that mindset, it seems like a race to the bottom. Like, yeah. oh, well, okay. I'm entry level. I'll happily work like a billion hours in one week if I have to. No sleep or nothing kind of shit. Um, and it's like, who can like outcompete who in yeah, terms of compete, being, yep. being a slave? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, you hit that word, compete. Um, our economic system is heavily oriented toward competition. Ruthless competition. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think uh, I think in American society, United States of American society, we can definitely see this a lot in sports, for example, as well. Um, this mindset of a sports mentality applied to um, the work, uh, the workplace, um, which it doesn't it, it doesn't translate well. It doesn't translate well. Yeah. I mean, like, hell, your competition is rooted in almost in every fucking aspect, like you compete with other people just to get the job because there's only so many jobs available and there's not enough jobs to like cover the the entire demand of like the workforce so you're always going to have some number of people who are either unemployed or underemployed and also too you're you're not mentioning meritocracy or you're not mentioning how there is no meritocracy there where usually the person who gets the job is the person who has connections or the person who has 
uh, what's another word I'm looking for besides connections? Um, hmm. A clout or something? I, I guess you could say clout or seniority or something. I don't know. Well, you earn seniority technically. So. Mm hmm. But it still doesn't mean you're a good worker. You just lasted longer than everybody else. Yeah, like I've been 11 years at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, well, I am I, the best worker, one of them. <laughs> an audience, I have also worked at a Walmart for <laughs> not as long, but pretty fucking close. And <laughs> when you hell, if you work in any retail or food service industry, you have yeah. encountered and dealt with your supervisors and managers and corporate types. Who are the most bumbling, incompetent fucking halfwits God yeah. ever shat on this misbegotten planet? Yeah, the higher ups, man. Like if they had, if they had forgotten how to breathe, they would fucking die. Stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, or if it wasn't in a manual somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. barely fucking literate and fucking boomer mentality. Everything, yeah. like. You know better people could do better jobs in yeah. those roles, but they don't. Like, it's the myth of meritocracy. And you see it also, not just in your workplaces, but you see it also in politics as well. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we don't vote on people who are the most qualified for positions. We yeah, vote yeah. for people because we think that they will represent our interests the most. And all our interests seem to be fucking on completely different planets at this point. Mm, yeah, um, at this point, yeah. Like, I, if I have to vote for anybody, I would want somebody, for example, that thinks, you know, healthcare is a human right. Um, that education, higher education is also a human right. Things like mm. that. No human being is illegal. Or they support certain policies that I want to see enacted. You know, like Medicare for all. Shit like that. Mm -hmm. um, while others will vote for people because they want to own the fucking libs or, the, yeah. you know, the, CR the, the yeah. CRT is corrupting our children yeah. or all this other fucking bullshit. Yeah, yeah, and when in actuality, the person you vote for has no control over that. <laughs> or the economy. You think the fucking president yeah. of the United States has a yep. great effect on the economy? Fuck no. Like, yeah. Once in maybe a hundred years, a president can kind of fucking actually really, really, really drastically improve things, you know, like with the New Deal under FDR. But when you, for the most part, like a president can only like make minor effects on the economy. Like, that's it. It's they cannot change the, the whole course of the economy, especially yeah. in fucking four years. Oh, yeah. And I love how people blame, like, the president, uh, no matter who they are, Republican or Democrat. Mm -hmm. I love how people blame them for stuff like gas prices being high. Like, <laughs> blame Wall Street for that, folks. <laughs> yeah, blame the global market for that, too. Blame the commodities market for that. <laughs> it's not, it nothing to do with the president, whether it's Orange is his face or Joe Biden. <laughs> right. And you know what else, too? The president of the United States does not create jobs. They, they're not responsible for job growth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely, yeah. Especially when you talk to Trump supporters about, you know, the oh, economy yeah. under Donald Trump, they'll point out, partly correct, that, you know, there was an increase of jobs. There was, like, a lot less unemployment than there previous was, previously was. But when you actually look at the data, it was just following an upward trend of, of increasing employment 
that also goes back to Barack Obama's administration. So, like, do you think Obama for that increase of the jobs then? <laughs> <No>. Or <laughs> was it Donald Trump who did it? You know, I mean, it's it's that kind of shit I'm talking about. Yeah. But, yeah, so all that bullshit said, yeah. there is some other stuff that you wanted to talk about before we got into our main event today. Well, our main event today is going to be part one of our series about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. That's right, folks. We're going to be doing some indigenous history starting this month. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk today about Coronado's expedition. Quite fascinating. Can't wait till we get there. But before that, though, um, I did a lesson recently for my modern world history class. And you got to understand something here. As a teacher, you're like, wait a minute. You just said you work at Walmart. I work at Walmart and I work for the city's school district. Full time on the school district, part time at Walmart. And so I made a lesson about the Latin American Revolution. And, you know, the curriculum tells us, hey, we have to use we have to I should say the the state of Ohio's learning standards say that we have to talk about how the Enlightenment influenced the Latin American revolutions, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the uh, French Revolution. And so, yeah. And so one lesson that I made also was about implying the applying these Enlightenment ideas to. Dun, dun, uh, social class and race in Latin America in the pre-Latin American revolution, before the Latin American revolution. Gasp. <laughs> and um, one thing that I, I um, that basically, that basically in the lesson I taught students is just the different social classes and races in the Latin American, um, in, in the Spanish empire in modern day Latin America, right? Mm. It wasn't anything about quote unquote indoctrinating students. It was just saying, you know what I found pretty interesting class when I was learning about the Latin American revolution, social class. And the way that you were classified, it was based on race and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't know out there audience, what I was talking about, well, think about the term mestizo. Creole. Have you ever heard of those before? How about you, Cornbread? I've heard of both of them, yeah. Yeah. And so, check this out. And this also relates to what we're talking about today for our main event. The Spanish, from 1492 to now. Sorry, I said now. <laughs> the wow. Spanish, from uh, after Columbus, Christopher Columbus landed his punk butt um, in the Americas. Um, in the on the island of Hispaniola, uh, to be more accurate. But after he landed, um, the Spanish, because he was doing it for Spain, the Spanish quickly took over um, South America, well, parts of South America, Central America, and Southwest, modern-day Southwest United States. Mm -hmm. And there was this social class, this hierarchy that they had. And it was just so fascinating to me because your position in that society was based on how much how on if you had a Spanish descendant or not or a, a descendant from Spain. Mm, yeah. And those at the top of this of this hierarchy um, were called peninsulares, if I'm saying that right. 
Yeah, somebody born in Iberia, essentially. Yeah. Yep. And and basically, somebody who was born in Spain and then my immigrated to the Spanish Empire. Um. Then at the the next the next rung, rung below the Peninsulares, and by the way, the Peninsulares were at the top of the social class system, so they had uh, all the rights and privileges more than anybody below them, mm-hmm. and the wealth and the money. That's how social class works. Below the Peninsulares were the Creoles. Yeah. Um, and the, oh yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say in Spanish, you know, the term, at least in this context, would be criollo. Yeah. Oh, Criollo. Okay, yeah. With the two L's? Yeah. Yo? Okay. Uh, and so this social class, these were uh, people who were born in the New World, in the Americas, South America, Central America, North America. And they were born here and they had at least one, um, and they had at least a Spanish descendant in their family tree. Mm-hmm. Um. Now below the the Creoles, you say Creoles or Criollos, Criollos. Below that social class, below them on that on the next rung were the mestizos and mulatos. Um, mestizos were people who had mixed uh, ancestry, like they were considered mixed. I guess you could say they had like indigenous ancestors or descendants whatever mm-hmm. uh wait a minute descendant yeah that's the same thing they had indigenous descendants and they also had european descendants right and they were considered mestizos mm-hmm. and the mulattoes they had uh african de- uh, ancestors or descendants um but they were not the slaves they enslaved kind of just like a a ring of Above being a slave for the most part. Yeah. And of course at the bottom were the enslaved and this you this usually um were in the indigenous people and those kidnapped uh from West Africa and brought and kidnapped forcibly and brought forcibly to the New World, the Americas to be slaves. Mm-hmm. And so that's so that's the hierarchy that we see in the Spanish Empire in the Americas at this time period that we're talking about. Yeah. And we touched, so, we actually talked whew. a little, quite a bit about that during our series about, you know, the history of Mexico and Texas. We talked a little bit about how, you know, the racial social caste system, yeah. you know, really determined your life outcomes and how that motivated people like Santa Ana, who himself was Criollo and yeah, found yeah. his opportunities uh, you know, with the exception of the military, uh, highly limited because mm. his he was of Criollo background and there was a lot of, you know, of jobs and career paths that were excluded to him because of that. Yeah. Same with Simon Bolivar. Yeah. He was a Criollo as well. Yeah, it's really an interesting and complicated system. Yeah. And it doesn't work in the same way that we would think about racial and social systems in like the early United States, where it's more mm, yeah. to do with like entirely your race. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and by the way, too, that's the only thing I taught my students. So, <laughs> like, I didn't teach them about <laughs> CRT or any legal theory like CRT. So, then teach but, about uh, CRT or LMNOP or yeah, yeah. HRT. But, but that's a but but I mean, as an educator, I, I can speak on the fact that um, a lot of us are teaching with our butts with our butt cheeks on one side of ourselves oh oh hey you there oh yeah i hear you you're good okay i think hold on uh hold on <laughs> i need to plug in my um it cord was, real quick yeah do that it was so funny I, because you're like getting so <laughs> fired up and you're talking about more butt cheek and then you just kind of like cut out <laughs> Wow. <laughs> We're off to a great technical start today, folks. Oh, yeah. Um, my screen. Um, oh, there it is. So oh. I didn't think my computer was plugged in. Sorry. But it's plugged in. Thank heavens. Yeah. Let me turn you down just a little bit. Okay, you're good now. Okay. You, you should be fine. But no, I was just about to say that, I mean, there's so much... Um, Teachers, man, in addition to just being in a classroom with students, uh, the more rowdy students as well, and being in this environment of COVID and being in an environment where there's a lack of substitute teachers, <laughs> I can go on and on. But there's also um, from the more uh, right side of the political spectrum, there's also this pressure on teachers. It's, it's so, I, I mean, me personally, I feel like if you tell me, um, there's stuff that I can and can't teach. That's bullshit. Because true academic freedom is being able to explore the the wide range of the human experience. So, yeah. <laughs> and if your goal is to set policies for education that limit that, let's be real. You don't fucking care about making sure these kids are educated or critical thinkers or even informed. It's just, you're just indoctrinating them. That's it. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. want them to be fucking indoctrinated. You want them to be workers. Make them stupid. Yeah. They're, the, they're the lower class kids. Make them stupid. Make, you know? them, make them stupid, but also make them, you know, super patriotic and bring them oh, up yeah. in this ideological view of like yep. the world and history so that they'll fucking vote for you in the future too. And um, two, you know, when we talked about uh, the social class in Latin America, we talked about how, again, as a revolution, it was mostly like the upper the upper classes of that social system system leading that revolution. They're the ones who inspired by those Enlightenment ideals to break away from Spain and get uh, the peninsulares, those at the top of the uh, social system, to be more equal equality. Yeah. So, but the Haitian Revolution, oh, by the way, the Haitian Revolution, holy crap, we need to do an entire episode or maybe a whole series about that. I agree. Um, if you actually, in the meantime, I would recommend my audience check out a really great series. Um, I think it's called Extra Credits. And they have like a, uh, da -da 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 -da, let me go to ye old YouTube, Extra Credits. Haitian Revolution. And 
so you look up extra credits Haitian Revolution. Okay. You got I an, they got an eight part series. Highly fucking recommend it. And best part is they actually have a video in that series where they actually correct and answer some questions. So you know they address some criticisms. You know deal with some stuff they might have gotten wrong, which is great because we love you know some accountability here. Oh yeah. Um. And they recommend they actually talk about some of the sources they use too, which is also great. Um, yeah. But this is a fantastic series, and just so the audience remembers it, and so you never forget, extra history or extra extra credits, extra credits, Haitian Revolution. And that's one thing. Uh, next week, I'm gonna be teaching my students, but I'm gonna be teaching my students about the Haitian Revolution with the historical question of this: Was it a success? Because remember, um, I don't. Well, you know, because we talk. I think we talked about it one time on this podcast. But after the Haitian Revolution, uh, France demanded and got <laughs> reparations payments from Haiti. You yep. remember that? So got, <laughs> got fucking reparations <laughs> from the fucking yeah. balls. I feel like that. I, I mean, yeah, the boss, but I mean, I, I, it makes me think of the of student the student loan scam going on now. Like what scam? The fact that you have to pay, or that you have to that members of the lower class, you know, like me, have to take out these exorbitant exorbitant student loan amounts in order to move up into a new social class, <laughs> and then we're paying for the rest of our lives. And even that shit's not even a guarantee that you'll get into that fucking yeah, special class. Yeah, and even that's yeah, not a guarantee. Yeah. Sometimes so. you sometimes <laughs> you get student loans and you're fucking you're fucked either way. Um, but yeah, do you want to move on to the next thing you want to talk about while I take a quick bathroom break? Oh yeah. Um, All right, I will so, be back. Yeah, I'm gonna skip over the uh, how classist some language can be. We'll talk about that later. Um, I guess right now, um, I've been following a lot of this Kyle Rittenhouse verdict that came, what, last, uh, what, last week or something? But anyway, I've been following that, and, um, it disturbs me, but not, it doesn't disturb me in the way that you may think, where you may be out there and think, well, yeah, it disturbs me because he got off. Well, <laughs> Yeah, but, but, what disturbs me is, I think, a flaw, huge flaw in our justice system. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. He's going to talk about racism. No, I'm actually not. Oh, oh, don't you feel stupid. What I'm going to talk about is lack of context. So, what do I mean by lack of context, and why is lack of context a flaw in our a judicial system. So, um, here we go. Here's going to be my argument, I guess. So, here we go. So, this whole verdict, right? This guy was charged with murder, and it, and the, but the context is lacking. So, what I mean by context is lacking is this. This guy, of his own volition, willingly, not forced to, he leaves his home with a weapon, willfully, of his own volition, not forced to. He leaves his home, 
goes to a place where he has no business of going, <laughs> right? No business. No business whatsoever. Kills people. All right? All right. Well, the context... I mean, well, to me, it's an open and shut case. He's guilty. Murder. Done. Or, I should say, if we want to be more legal, he's guilty of the charges. But mm. I think our justice system is really lacking that context because <laughs> you went there of your own volition with a gun. What do you think was going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I really think the context should be considered when we talk in that verdict. And that's what disturbs me the most is that this, I mean, this is a precedent. You can, if I see something on my television, Mm-hmm. I see something on my television. I don't like it. I see people protesting, and regardless of it's a, if it's a left or right political spectrum protest, I see people protesting. I'm going to go to that specific place I saw on my TV with a gun. I'm going to drive up there with a gun of my own volition. Nobody's forcing me. And I'm just going to walk around with my gun. I'm going to put that negative energy out there, right? And I talked a lot. I talked before on this podcast about, you know, how when I see people in Walmart carry carry guns out in the open like pistols, it's a negative energy. It's basically it's it's not supernatural, but it's an energy that's coming from that gun and that person that's saying, fuck with me, motherfucker. I dare you. I dare go dare you say (laughs) something. Right. Am I wrong? All right. Yeah, wow. I mean, no, I, I agree. Like, if you're talking about somebody with a gun, like, th- no matter what the situation is, like, unless they're, like, stopping a fucking shooter or whatever, then, yeah. like, they're stopping an active shooter, right? Then somebody with a gun is pretty much, like, a risk. They're bringing, like, a potential risk into wherever they're going with them absolutely yeah like doesn't matter if they're all about the second amendment doesn't matter if they got the fucking thing holstered yeah yeah the fact that you have like a weapon there at all and you went there of your own volition you didn't have to be there nobody forced you to actually travel that far (laughs) yeah no one nobody put a gun up the fucking kyle rittenhouse's head so you get yeah you get over there and fucking and it and it's thought out too, right? You're driving there. It's taking you hours to get there. You're driving. You're thinking in your head. You got malice on your mind. Like, where's the context here? Right. <laughs> there was no context. These people followed. These people were strict on the charges. Is he guilty of this char- of these charges? And the law. Context, people. Yeah. And then like. If you're looking at, like, the plainest reading of the laws there, I mean, they're going off yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. They're going off the, the written law. Yeah. yeah, but also I will, and this is speculation on my, my part. Okay. If Kyle Rittenhouse were black, oh, okay. do you think that he would have gotten the same treatment and consideration that like by the justice system that he got as a white kid oh oh there you go putting crt in it you son of a bitch Uh, that's an example of critical race theory folks that yeah that Um, actually is 
That literally that is, is critical race theory. Critical race theory is about it originated in the legal uh, with legal scholars. But mm-hmm. uh, I agree with you. I, no, you, to answer your question, yeah, I don't think he would. Yeah, gotten off. Um, and also too, uh, one thing about this too is that he stood trial for shooting three white men. Um, I think yeah. if he would have shot. Well, um, I should also note that one of them was actually Jewish. Um, but, oh, okay. you know, white passing Jewish guy. Oh, yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that actually, I'm sure uh, this Rittenhouse guy has national white nationalist uh, leanings. Mm, I have no <laughs> Allegedly. idea Allegedly. Well, sure. I mean. Yeah, I'm not as confident of making that claim, honestly. But. Well, I'll say allegedly. But, uh, but anyway, so... Um, so yeah, so that the that's my whole argument is where's the context? <laughs> context. Nobody had a gun to your head, <laughs> right? Like nobody is going to be punished for this. I mean, mm-hmm. well, like oh, even well, even if you do not blame Rittenhouse directly, there was people who enabled him, right? Oh, well, yeah, his mom. Yeah, yeah. There were people who, like got him there in the first place <laughs> like he didn't drive himself i yeah. he didn't even get the gun by himself then the gun correct me if i'm oh, wrong didn't i'm not the, sure about that i'm not gonna speculate on that either yeah like i i could have sworn you know he got the gun from like a brother or some other guy or some shit i don't know i could be yeah. totally wrong but i want to make sure stick to the facts yeah yeah i'm not gonna yeah. comment on something i don't know but there but were like, enablers that like, if you're looking at cause and effect here, like, there are people who are guilty of helping yeah. this happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, th- that's... Whew. And another disturbing... Another disturbing thing to me is... <laughs> and I joked with you, too, before the podcast, is this guy, this Rittenhouse guy, he is, he's going to be a millionaire... He's gonna get tons of uh, women. I, 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 I won't be baldy. He's, he's gonna, gonna get tons of women. He's gonna get them like Caitlyn Bennett's girls who it, shit their it pants. Don't, it don't matter, homie. He's gonna get them. So he's gonna be swimming in money and women, and he's gonna be. Uh, I, 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 I'm gonna predict. I may be wrong. I'm gonna predict that he's actually gonna run for public office as well. I mean, according to this this political article, article, or rather, it's an opinion piece by um, by Aaron Aubrey Kaplan um, from November twentieth. Um, according to this article, representatives like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Gates, for example, he is uh, off suggested he might reward Rittenhouse's quote-unquote fortitude with a congressional internship. So he's, so this guy, like, you want to talk about meritocracy, well, the only merit, merits that he's earned is he killed people. Like, this is disturbing, right? I'm thinking in my head, who the hell can I kill to get some clout? <laughs> of course, like, I'm joking, but... <laughs> yeah, guys like Matt Gates, uh, Madison Cawthorn... Um, all these fucking assholes. You know what? I call them gags because they're grifting ass grifters. Gags. Grifting ass grifters, huh? Grifting that. You got to say it right. Grifting ass grifters. So they're gags to me. 
But uh, I saw this meme too on Facebook from this woman that I know. Um, <laughs> this meme, um, this meme had the Rittenhouse dude. I, it looked like he was painting a wall. <laughs> you couldn't really see the end of his hand in this meme. It looked mm-hmm. like he was painting a wall, and it said, "Be." And it said at the top, "What's at the top or the bottom?" Anyway, it basically said, "Be like Rittenhouse, not like George Floyd." Uh wow! What the and first thing I'm thinking too is I'm thinking, damn, she wants to bone him. <laughs> Ew! She, oh she, God! She posted this picture, right? And she's like, "I'm gonna post this again because I took it down, and if you don't get it, it's okay." And she, and then she wrote, "I don't need your judgment." <laughs> <laughs> that's not the judgment she was thinking <laughs> but she was uh expecting but <laughs> like but man this guy money and women he's gonna be swimming in that stuff and what kind of bad precedent and example does that send to the youth of the united states of america just kill somebody be in a place where you're not supposed to be claim self-defense you'll be set free and you'll make a lot of money and you'll be and a lot of men or women, whatever you prefer, no judgment here. You're like you know fuck, what I'm saying? You're like the fucking Harkonnens, just, you know, like with <laughs> sex slaves of all varieties of heart plugs. Well, I'm not saying slavery. I'm just saying a lot of these, uh, we'll get a lot of women because he's a celebrity now. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think this is 15 minutes of fame. I mean, I really think this kid bought his way into a lifetime of riches, wealth, in a lifetime of women, fast and easy women, or sex, I should say. But I, you know, I don't want. Maybe he's gay. So I'm sorry if you know I'm 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 uh, what's it called? Uh, if I'm. They, what do they call them? People misgender people. If I'm uh. Uh, I mean, if they're doing it intentionally, you could say they're like a transphobe. Oh. Uh, but no, I don't want to uh, assume this guy's sexuality. So maybe he's gay. So anyway, whether he's gay or straight, he's going or bisexual, he's going to be swimming in sex and money. He's going to be like a like a stereotypical uh, Saudi prince or something. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, it, and that's messed up. It's disturbing to me. You know, it's disturbing. I don't know what his future is going to be like. Like, I mean, there's so many different routes this could take. Like, I will say this, though. Uh, and this is going to sound very, very fucking weird. But I'm looking at a Newsweek article, oh. right? And I'm going to share it with you. Okay. And basically, this article is implying that Kyle Rittenhouse is actually trying to distance himself from, like conservative political figures well good for him like if that's the truth if this is a truth just assuming i'm not saying this how, how likely this is or not um but one section in this article says that in a teaser clip for his upcoming interview with fox news host tucker carlson that's good. <laughs> he said that's he good. supported the black lives matter movement yeah i'm sure he does and i mean i I, I don't know how much we should take that, like how much salt we should take that statement with, um, given you know, what he did. Um, 
Uh, let's see here. His attorney, Mark Richards, distanced his client away from American conservatives following the acquittal on Friday and called out those profiling on the case, profiting on the case. Well, he's going to be profiting himself. Probably. Probably. Oh, hell yeah. Um, money, and, money and sex. Yeah. Richards said, they're raising money on it, and you have all these Republican congressmen saying, come work for me, he said. Richards. They want to trade on his celebrity, and I think it's disgusting. Oh, he, yeah. It is, yeah. I, I can see his point there. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. Mark Richards, the, the attorney, also hit back at Donald Trump Jr. for encouraging oh, a guns right group to send an AR-15, the style of rifle Rittenhouse used in August last year, as a award. Mm. Richards told Insider, he's an idiot. I don't have to expand on that because it speaks for itself. <laughs> Dang, well, that's cool. Damn, I'm glad you shared. Yeah, that's so. I'm not preach. Like I, like I said, I'm not. I, I am super skeptical. Obviously, um, no, yeah. don't get me wrong. And it would seem very weird that a lawyer would make statements like that on his client's behalf without his client's yeah. approval. Yeah. Because Rittenhouse is 18, he's a legal adult now. Um, it's a lot of unknowns at this point, and I'm not sure. Mm. I think we would probably make better use of our time waiting, just waiting and observing what happens instead of, you know, trying to speculate the future, trying to predict it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really glad to hear that, though. Yeah, I like, am. I'm not defending this fucker. Don't get me wrong. No, yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> but I am trying to work with what facts I have here and, you know, come to, like, the fairest conclusion possible considering those yeah. facts. So, yeah. that said, you think it's time to get on to our main event? All right, ring that bell. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right, folks, because it is November, we're getting pretty close to Thanksgiving. Like, can you, oh my God, can you believe it? It's like already the 22nd and this shit's on Thursday. My God. So we're going to be talking about some indigenous history because That's God, right. God knows we've covered this whole shit with the Puritans and all that already. I had enough talking about the fucking Puritans for a lifetime at this point. As interesting <laughs> yeah. as it was, I'm fucking sick of the Puritans. You know what's weird? Pilgrims. I'm actually going to be recording the PBS uh, Pilgrims episode. PBS Experiences Pilgrims. Oh, that's going to be great. <laughs> I love yeah. PBS. Yeah. So, yeah. This time, though, we're not actually going to be looking at what is happening along the east coast of the United States. Rather, we're going to be looking back into the southwest uh yeah. in what is or what is becoming new spain yeah yeah i'm so, glad we did that at the beginning of the podcast where we talked about the social class systems of spain of the new spain of new spain yeah because that the social class of the spanish empire permanently affected how people living in latin america today view race oh, yeah. and class oh and yeah and i'll just say that oh, i'm sorry no i was just gonna say and how it contrasts with you know like the anglo-american understanding of it 
Oh yeah. Well, well, here's the issue too, um, from the Anglo-American perspective, um, you, especially when it comes to our um, our brothers and sisters who have descendants from Africa here in the uh, United States, and, and not only the United States, but all over North America and South America. You mm -hmm. know, we're all Americans. So one of the things to consider here, this fact, this fact, if you look at statistics from uh, from the transatlantic slave trade, which forcibly kidnapped and forcibly brought West Africans over to the Americas, North America, South America, Central America, a fact, a glaring fact is... Only 5%, 5% of those forcibly kidnapped and transferred across the Atlantic Ocean, only 5% went to the United States of America. Oh, yeah. The rest went to South America and especially Central America to be slaves um, in, the, um, in the West Indies, I think they're called. Yeah, um, Hispaniola, the Caribbean, yeah. um, Peru... Mex yeah. what became Mexico later on. Well, it wasn't uh, always too the Spanish. Uh, the Portuguese were one of the in Brazil, yeah, slave traders in Brazil, yeah, yeah. That's why they speak uh, Portuguese in Brazil because it was a Portuguese colony, Portugal. Did you know that there's actually one country in South America where the official language is Dutch? Oh no, what is that? Suriname. Wow, where is that at? The, is it the northern? It's it yeah it's in the northern part it's like right it borders Guyana. Oh okay yeah and, I know uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, that is actually that was colonized by the Dutch. Um, so you have people who are Latino and indigenous who are <laughs> Dutch speakers. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's, <laughs> it's, it was like the most interesting thing. Um, it, I mean it's a super diverse country. Um, yeah. because you have, you know, your, uh, people like ethnic groups who are called Maroons, uh, you have, you know, Indo-Surinamese, you have Creoles, you have the Javanese, um, some percentage. From the island of Java? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's right. Oh my goodness. Uh. Well, that's the thing too. Like, think about it in terms of, it, are not the Americas, South America, Central America, North America are not the Americas like the most diverse place in the entire world. You probably on par with Africa or Asia, yeah. What well, in well, diverse can mean a lot of different things. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but just but wow, man, such a melting pot. I guess you can say. Yeah, it's just it's like the things you take for granted, you know. Yeah. Or you just don't even know about. It's like you can go to Suriname, right? And there's like holidays you never heard about. Um, you know, <laughs> like if you're Catholic, you probably heard of Three Kings Day. Um, there's also, you know, the Chinese New Year. There's Good yeah. Friday. There's the Indian Arrival Day. Um, <laughs> Javanese Arrival Day. There's Diwali. There's. Always want to visit Indonesia. Yeah. And there's Eid, of course, because, you know, Muslims. So, oh yeah, yeah, it's a very diverse little country. Be awesome, man. Just, I mean, just learning about other people's cultures and religion in a tolerant way. It's great. Yeah. 
Which uh, we're, we're going to be learning some today, too, as we discuss oh, yeah. the Pueblo Revolt against the Smash Empire. Yeah. Uh, well, well, wait, wait. Not that. We're actually going to be doing Coronado's Exposi Expedition today. Oh, that's right. This is actually yeah. going to be part one. So yes. we yeah. have to obviously, you know, establish the background, you know. Yeah. Context. And a few, well, yeah, a few notable sources, too. Um, when making my notes today, I used one, two, three, four, five, six different sources. Um, of course, you know, I started with the Wikipedia Pueblo Revolt and Coronado's Expedition. Mm -hmm. But um, I used uh, five other sources, too. Um, one from NewMexicoNomad.com. Um, yep. One from LegendsOfAmerica.com about the Hopi people. And... Another one from KhanAcademy.org, um, and one from DesertUSA.com, all one word, DesertUSA. There it And is. I used a pretty cool video from PBS.org, Frontera, Revolt, and Rebellion on the Rio Grande. Oh, so. yeah. And uh, we'll get into our notes about why Angelo using Manson multiple sources teacher. is so essential to conducting historical inquiry. Mm. At some point, I got to watch this because I still have yet to actually watch, you know, Frontera. Oh, dude, that Frontera video is PBS.org. And mm. this woman says, kick up wrong in it. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Kick up wrong? What? Yeah, uh, accor and this is according to like the little uh, blurb right next to the video. Um, the first American Revolution occurred along the Rio Grande in northern New Mexico when the Pueblo Indians broke from the Spanish Empire. The 1680 Pueblo Revolt shaped the deeply contested territories of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands even today. Native and Chicano narrators recall this living history through humor, music, and cartoons. Oh, yeah. It's awesome, and it's only, like, I think 18, 19 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, all those in podcast land, if you want to check this out, it's PBS, Frontera, Revolt and Rebellion on the Rio Grande. Oh, yeah. So, um, let's start with some context first, before. So, let's talk about what Spain is doing at this time. Um, so, starting right. here on the background context you with me there i am with you there all right so spain after christopher columbus quote unquote discovers the americas mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so after so spain is well i should say the spanish king and queen right spain is ecstatic right so what spain does to conquer this new world is spain sent conquistadores conquerors and trained them uh and these uh conquistadores conquistadores were trained you know these were trained and these were uh con people trained in warfare you know soldiers trained in warfare so spain sends these battle-hardened soldiers to be conquistadores conquerors to the Western Hemisphere to plunder Native American gold and silver treasures and expand Spanish domination and start a Spanish empire. And uh, just to show you what the mindset was, you know, 
You know how Snoop Dogg said, I got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Well, check this out. Yeah. Here's what Cortez, Hernan Cortez, the conqueror of the Aztecs said. I came to get gold, not to till the soil like a peasant. That sounds like a rap lyric. <laughs> Jesus, it does. Give me your gold. <laughs> so uh, Cortez was a conquistador who conquered the Aztec people and, of course, committed numerous atrocities. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so not only is Spain sending these conquistadores there, Spain is also sending uh, citizens to settle the land and subjugate the people. And also, Spain is also sending Franciscans, uh, Jesuit, uh, Jesuits, basically religious missionaries to harvest the souls of the quote-unquote heathens. That's not patronizing at all. <laughs> yeah. And so these Spanish conquistadores, right, they come in this new land and they start taking it over, committing atrocities, and the Spanish Empire is groaning and growing and groaning. I said groaning. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think to also provide a little bit more background, too. Yeah. Um, this is well after the Spanish conquest of Mexico, as you yeah. just described. So Mexico, um, all this territory, Mexico is kind of at the heart of it. It's all what's called New Spain, Nuevo España. And that's essentially, you know, the gem of the Spanish Empire at this point. Yeah. You know, because not only are they, you know, harvesting gold and all this other stuff, but it's also a gateway to the Pacific Ocean, too where oh, yeah. Spain later would, you know, colonize the Philippines yeah. and then would start, you know, a trade route from there going westward to America, to New Spain, and then back to Spanish proper across the Atlantic. So there's a big international trade route. Yeah. So, and, yeah. uh Go ahead. And, and one of the things, too, that uh, Spanish gives to these conquistadores wherever they go and explorers as well are these two things um so the spanish uh crown the king and queen the monarchy of spain is basically telling them to what is basically telling them this system of ah uh, encomienda Am I saying that right? The encomienda system. The encomienda. So an encomienda is a grant by the Spanish king and queen, the Spanish crown, to a colonist in America conferring the right to demand tribute and forced labor from the indigenous inhabitants of an area. Right. So you basically were entitled to basically be a fucking leech, unlike society. Yeah. Um, yep. Here's your reward. You get land and slaves to do work for you. Yeah. And um, not only that as well, but this system of repartimiento, am I saying that right? <laughs> repartimiento, yeah. Yeah, so this system, repartimiento, um, is a system by which the Spanish crown allowed certain colonists to recruit indigenous peoples for slavery. And so <laughs> what we're seeing here, y'all, they really mean that word subjugation. Their mission, the Spanish, the, the Spanish king and queen, the Spanish crown's mission is to get money, is to get 
get resources to get resources from this new world and as much of it as possible even if that means they got to enslave the people already there the indigenous inhabitants right and this is spain under the reign of uh king ferdinand and isabella right after you know the reconquista which was when the spanish christians expelled the last of the moorish uh holdings in granada from the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. Um, and so that's the basically the historical context at that time. Um, do you have anything else to say before we get to geography? Uh, no, I think we've covered, you know, the background pretty well. So, yeah, let's keep going. So geography is important here, too, because the Spanish Empire in the Americas was huge vast you know it's huge very huge and so this empire stretched from the bottom of south america well at its height from the bottom of south america all the way to modern day california and colorado um and depending on what year you look at of the spanish empire it can be even uh i've seen maps that go as far as modern day canada and florida from what i've looked at but yeah. for our purpose we're just going to be talking about um, the area in modern day New Mexico, Arizona, West Texas, and Colorado and Kansas. Right. And just to make sure, um, I'm pretty sure this, just for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call this area New Spain. New Spain, okay. Yeah. All that area. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and of course, as, as you know, modern day Brazil was controlled by Portugal. So they, so the Spanish didn't control all of South America. Um, and so when we talk about Coronado's expedition, Juan de Yanyate's expedition and the Pueblo revolt, we're, we are in Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico. And this is basically a kingdom of the Spanish empire, New Spain. So it's a kingdom of New Spain. And this is modern day New Mexico and a part of West Texas, Arizona. And so this area will be important in discussing today's events. Right. We're pretty much going to be focusing on the American Southwest. Yeah. And especially the uh, Rio Grande, the Rio Grande River, the Rio Grande River, because um, the Rio Grande, the any river, especially this one, means literal life and death for the people who live near it and the people who use it to farm, especially in the time period we're talking about. If the river dries up during a drought, for example, it is a time of suffering and death for many of the people living there. And um, a few indigenous peoples around the Rio Grande River at this time, they have a, um, a myth, if mm -hmm. that's the right word to use in this context. Yeah. Um, they have a myth about this horn snake which is a large serpent of thunder and lightning that brings the storm and brings the rain and it feeds the corn or the food or, you know, the farming and it gives life or food to the people. And there is a time when the snake goes away and there is no rain. And according to the mythology, this brings the people's living there little food, disease and violence. And so that is basically the geography of what area we're going to be in uh, for this series. All right. Good summary. So yeah. I guess for further clarity, 
who are we talking about when we refer to, you know, the Pueblo or the Pueblo peoples? Oh, yeah, good point. Um, so, <laughs> um, I was confused by this at first, too. Um, so, the word Pueblo, it actually means village in Spanish. Town, village in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so, that's where we get the word from. Mm, I see. But, yeah. And so, but when we're referring to the Pueblo peoples or Pueblo of the Southwest, um, it can be quite confusing because it can also, because it can mean, well, let me just write on my note. Let me just share my notes here. Yeah, go ahead. However, when Pueblo is capitalized, it refers to the Pueblos peoples who are indigenous Americans living in the area of Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. Right. In New Spain. Right. It's not and, like it's not like yeah. a single culture or even a yeah. single language. It's yeah. just kind of like the grouping yeah. of these peoples that the Spanish kind of came up with. And you know what's confusing too, I think, to us here, uh United citizens of the United States of America, is that we tend to think of indigenous Americans as tribes. Right. Well, this doesn't fit the Pueblo peoples. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of them in tribe. Oh, this is this Native American tribe or this Native American tribe. This doesn't really like fit when we talk about the Pueblo peoples. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, you could probably argue that, you know, like a nation is probably maybe closer to that. Um, well, how about Greek city states? You know how the Greek city yeah. states? Yeah. You know, yeah. like. Um, you know, like how Aristotle was originally from, you know, he was an Athenian, um, not necessarily like he's a Greek culturally, but not Greek in the sense of like a national identity. Right. Well, yeah. And, and even back then before the, um, before the war with the, uh, Persian empire, mm -hmm. um, these, these Greeks living in those city states would not have seen themselves as Greeks. They would have, it was, it was regional, like, oh, I'm Spartan or I'm Athenian or, or I'm Corinthian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess this that's a good parallel for the Pueblo peoples. It's closer, yeah. Yeah, it's closer, yeah. Because these weren't like large city-states like the Greeks, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and the confusion gets... And the fusion, the confusion starts with the Spanish explorers. They used the term Pueblo to refer to the towns of the indigenous Americans they found in this region. And... So Pueblo can also refer to like a town of these Pueblo peoples. Um, and you'll hear multiple times different, I don't, should I call them tribes of the Pueblo peoples? Like you'll hear about the Hopis, you'll hear about the Tiwas, you'll hear about the Pecos, you'll hear about the Zunis. These are all collectively and more known as the Pueblo peoples. Yeah, I think these are more like... Um, I guess you could call them villages. I guess you could call them, you know, yeah. like ethnic. I don't know if ethnic groups would be right either. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. It gets very confusing, but it's more along the lines like, um, like these are not like a homogenous group of people. Yeah. I think whatever you walk away with, you know, each yeah. of these groups, like the Zuni um, or the Zia, uh, the Tezcuque, uh, the Tezuque, um, the San Felipe, they're all mm -hmm. speaking different languages. Um, now some of them speak similar languages, you know, like there's the Akamo and the Cochiti. 
uh, who speak a language called Keres. Um, whereas you have the Isleta and the and Jemenez Pueblo. Um, well, they speak two different languages too. You have some who speak Tiwa and some who speak Towa and some who speak Tewa. So there's a lot yeah. of differences linguistically. Um, there's a lot of similarities though too. It's more complicated than the fucking Spanish gave him, uh, yeah. gave oh, these yeah. people credit for. And, and the Pueblo peoples too share a trade network, a vast trade network in this area as well. So they're trading with each other. Yeah, and the, and and this is probably one of the most well-known thing about these people too is that they had like urban settlements. Well, they got this cool architecture. I uh, for their I fucking homes love, and buildings. I fucking oh, love that yeah. architecture. Yeah, and um, oh man, um, like I can't describe it. At least me through audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, but uh, but I guarantee everybody out there, if you saw this, you would you know what it looks like. Yeah, you would see it. You you would know if you've seen it. I guess. Yeah, you know, a lot of them are made with this material called adobe, um, and that's usually like earth and organic materials. You know, and sometimes it's, it's like mud brick. Sometimes it's other stuff. Um, and the construction of these is actually like pretty well designed, especially for the climate they're in. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it makes complete perfect sense that they would actually design you know these structures the way they did given you know like the climate and weather that they were living in yeah and ladders they got one of the remarkable features about this architecture is that they use ladders um like that they they use ladders to get like to the i guess the their quote-unquote roofs i guess and they and it's those type of ladders where you can um move them and remove them if you want so that nobody can get in your home or something. Uh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Um, I'm Hell looking, yeah. I'm looking at a picture right now of what's called the Taos Pueblo. Um, it's kind of like one of the more famous. I'll link it to you here in the chat. Um, honestly, like, I would actually like to live somewhere where it is, oh, you know, kind awesome. of built yeah. like, you know, where homes are kind of like designed around this. Hell yeah. I mean, that's that seems very communal to me, man. I know yeah. that's a nasty word in, in United States of America, political language, but... I don't want to live in no communist Pueblo housing, <laughs> fucker. But, uh, yeah, that's dope, man. I like that. <laughs> but, yeah, so... Um, well, I guess in summary, um, we can quote from Wikipedia and from the Frontero video. Um, so to quote Wikipedia, the Pueblo, the Pueblos people's... The Pueblo peoples or the Puebloans are Native Americans in the southwestern United States who share common agricultural, material, and religious practices. Uh, Pueblo, which means village in Spanish, was a term originating with, uh, with the Spanish who used it to refer to the people's part- particular style of dwelling. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Frontero video, the Pueblos were developed in civilized societies inhabiting dozens of autonomous villages speaking several distinct languages and establishing complex trade networks. Yeah, these people had a like, and this is not like a big surprise, but yeah. I think for for some people, this would surprise them, but there was there was a functioning, flourishing civilization before the oh, Europeans yeah. showed up. Yep. Peaceful too. Yeah, for the most part, as peaceful as part, any yeah. civilization can get. 
Yeah. And well, we're going to see how some of the uh, Pueblo peoples, too, experienced uh, some raids from their eastern neighbors. But I don't think they were involved. I don't think their eastern neighbors, like in Kansas and on the Great Plains, were Pueblo, were Pueblo peoples. No, um, those are more like the Apache and the okay. Comanche. Yeah. Um, so let's skip over this part that says, what is the Hopi? Because we're not going to be talking about that today. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go straight to the Coronado Exposition. Expedition. All right, let's get right into it. So, do you want me? All to right. s- want me to start? Um, yeah. Well, I, the reason why we're starting with this in part one today is because this provides a precursor to the revolt of 1680, the uh, Pueblo Revolt of 1680, because this is going to establish um, a precedent, a template, if you will. And so, the Coronado Expo- Expedition. 1540 to 1542. Go ahead. All right. Francisco Vasquez de Coronado is important here because his expedition in 1540 to this area established a baseline, a context for why the Pueblo peoples would revolt against the Spanish a century later. Coronado was a rich boy in Spain with... Did you seriously fucking write Mucho Connections? <laughs> mucho Connections. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm a rich boy, too. <laughs> well, I guess it's true. Um, he was too young on the totem pole in his family, so he stood to inherit nothing from, you know, his rich family. He's, like, on the younger side. So, yeah. you know, inheritance largely... Uh, determined by seniority so he leaves for the new world to make his fortune in mexico he rises to the position of governor of a province in mexico using his family connections and his brutal subjugation of indigenous peoples and black slaves working in mines not yeah oh one second not only that but he also marries into a rich family by marrying a woman named Beatrice, who happens to be the daughter of a former treasurer. Through this marriage, he inherits one of the largest estates in New Spain. What a lucky son of a bitch this guy is. (laughs) My notes, yeah. Those are his notes. Yeah, he's rich, man. (laughs) I kind of want to read it in, you know, like Dave's voice. (laughs) What a lucky son of a bitch this guy is. We hope to have him on soon. We're working it out, folks. <laughs> Special guest. Not survive, not satisfied with already being rich for his entire life. Coronado the slaver once more. He certainly has the Christopher Columbus complex. Coronado hears the embellished tale of the seven golden cities of Cibola, earlier Spanish settlers and ex- explorers and missionaries who traveled to the north as far as modern-day New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, would tell stories of a mythic empire of gold. In this empire were said to be seven cities of indescribable riches. These early Spanish explorers and missionaries were most likely referring to the settlements of the Zuni Pueblo tribes with the distinctive architecture and economy of the Pueblo peoples. So yeah. yeah, the seven the golden the seven golden cities of Cibola is 
a pretty old myth that a lot of Spanish conquistadores legit believe. And it's really funny, too, because the people who are actually living in America who are not these conquistadores know this, like, yo, this is stupid. (laughs) This is bullshit. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of like the fake news of their day, but this idiot falls for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to deviate from your notes a little bit to basically <laughs> talk about the origins of this stupid myth because it is oh, okay. Yeah. It is hella stupid. Um, so in the 16th century, the Spaniards of New Spain begin to hear rumors of seven cities of gold called Cibola located across the desert, hundreds of miles to the north. Of course it's across the desert right <laughs> naturally the, the stories may have their root in an earlier portuguese legend about seven cities found in the island of antilia by a catholic expedition in the 8th century or one based on the capture of meridia in spain by the moors in 1150 the later spanish tales largely were caused by reports given by four shipwrecked survivors of the failed Navarres expedition, which, oh, okay. in, which included Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Baca and a black Moorish slave named Esteban Dorantes. Oh, or, yes. Or Estebanico. Um, yeah, we need to talk about him. Estebanico. We're going to talk about this dude in a future like episode. Oh, yeah. Estebanico, uh, or also known as Esteban de Dorantes, or, most likely by his birth name, Mustafa Ezamori, was the first African to explore North America. We're going El to be Moro, talk- right? Yeah, he's a Moroccan dude. They called him El Moro, the Moor. Yeah, but his name, Estevanico, is actually pretty demeaning because it means Little Stephen. Oh, okay. Not yeah. something you probably want to be called, you know, by Yeah, your- if you're a man, you know. Yeah, it's very demeaning, um... So we're going to call him Mustafa when we talk about him in the future. Mustafa, Moro. So yeah, I like it. Eventually returning to New Spain, the adventurers said they heard stories from natives about cities with great and limitless riches. And <laughs> in 1539, Italian Franciscan Marco Deniza reached the Zuni Pueblo and called it Cibola. However, uh-huh. when... When conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado finally arrived in Cibola in 1540, he discovered, and this is a bit of a spoiler, he discovered that the stories were unfounded and there there were, in fact, no treasures, as the friar described, only adobe towns. So this is kind of where we're seeing the origin of the Cibola myth spread among the Spanish um, from some very... Incredible sources. <laughs> yeah, my cousin's friend. <laughs> Yo, my cousin's friend and his fucking slave and like two other guys were shipwrecked on this island, right? So turns out there's big fucking cities. Not on the island, but like hundreds of miles north, apparently, some fucking where. I don't know. Yeah, man, you gotta go through the desert to get them, bro. <laughs> yeah, mind you, this is like a time when people think California is actually an island. Um, fun fact, the Spanish, before actually arriving in California, believed that California was most likely like a big fucking island or something like that. No, um, I could kind of see that because in Amadis of Gaul, um, a book about chivalry during this time period, there was, there were these myths about California, California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of where that comes from. 
Um, so Coronado, but, I'm reading your notes here again. Oh, you don't have to say that part if you want. No, I want to. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> Coronado gets a huge boner at the prospect of conquering these fabled cities and being the richest man alive. He gets involved in a business venture when he and his family friend Antonio de Mendoza, the Spanish viceroy, both invest their money into an expedition to go up north and do what the devil does. Kill, steal, and destroy. My notes. <laughs> Your notes. It's good. That's like uh, we, the day we start selling merch. <laughs> that's going to be on some coffee mugs. Kill, steal, and destroy. Kill, steal, and slave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Coronado actually pawned his wife's estate to fund this expedition. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> Boy, and given what we just read about, you know, what he encounters, <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, like, but I'm like, dude, you're rich. You won. You probably got a hot wife. You got a huge estate. Why do you, What? what's your problem, dude? Yeah, you already have slaves too. What more do you fucking want? <laughs> Like, dude, you got slaves and shit, even though it's bad, of course, but... Yeah. Dude, you got... You're, rich, you're already rich. Get, like, an Xbox Five or something, or... <laughs> that's, not, that's not a thing, actually. He must be bored doing nothing while his slave's doing all the work. He's like, like, oh, what can I do? I'm bored. Bro, play some Age of Empires 4 if you're that fucking bored. <laughs> Damn, man, these rich people got it all, man. They're bored. God. Like Squid Game. So Coronado's expedition begins with about 300 to 400 Spaniards, more than a thousand Native Americans, some Catholic priests, some slaves, and many horses, pigs, ships, and cattle. I don't know where I got ships from. That's sheeps. Oh, sheep. Sheeps? You meant to say sheep? They're in the desert. They ain't got no ships. I just like. I just like to imagine these dumbass conquistadors dragging a Spanish galleon across the fucking desert. <laughs> he because yeah, yeah i can imagine that believing in some dumb shit like oh there's a huge ocean or something we gotta get to california <laughs> so they're not dragging it their slaves are so actually they're bringing livestock with them okay? yeah livestock, yeah <laughs> when they depart in february 1540 from compostela the capital of nueva galicia the region in mexico which Coronado is governor. The expedition travels north up the west coast of Mexico. After four months of traveling north along the west coast of Mexico and entering modern-day Arizona, the expedition finally comes into contact with the Pueblo peoples. At this point, the expedition is starving and on the brink of mutiny after scouts report that there is no discernible riches to be found yet. So, <laughs> these dudes getting angry. They getting Hell mad. Yeah. Like, you wasting our fucking time, Coronado. Yeah, it's think of this too. Like, I'm thinking of Coronado as being like a BS artist, just like Columbus was. Because you got to be one hell of a BS artist to convince that many people to come with you with no proof. Especially like... I mean, he probably believed it. He actually, no, I have no doubt that he believes this is the, you know, that this yeah. place is real. And I feel like there's perhaps like a sunken cost fallacy going on here. Oh, like, yeah. I, there will be. I invested my fucking wife's estate on this. Yeah. 
So Corey, like, I'm gonna have to hear it all the time from my wife. If I don't get rich. Oh yeah. So Coronado finds what he thinks is Cibola, but in reality, it's the Zuni Pueblo settlement of Hawica, which is located on the modern-day border of Arizona and New Mexico. Operating on the kill, steal, and slave mentality, Coronado tries to force his way into the town, but the Zuni Pueblo are not having it. They resist, and one of them even hits Coronado with a rock and wounds him. Damn. Damn. (laughs) That must be one hell of a rock and one hell of a throw. The better... The better equipped Spanish eventually get the better of the Zuni Pueblo peoples and Coronado occupies the city. I just like to imagine this fucking dude, this Zuni dude, he's got like a big fucking rock he just finds randomly and he like fucking launches it into the air and you can't even see where it's at because it's so high in the sky and then it just drops like a mortar like, oh, (laughs) just fucking hits him in the head. Oh, dude, Coronado gets messed up on these exp- on this expedition. You'll see later. It's a hilarious. It's hilarious to hear about him getting messed up. Yeah. Do you actually want to uh, start reading some of this yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so after this, word spreads to the other pueblos because of the pueblos, uh, because the Zuni people basically scattered, um, and. As well, the Pueblo's far-flung trading networks are scattered as well. They're being hurt at this point. So it disrupts trade. So, much to Coronado's chagrin, he doesn't find any gold in Hawaka. Uh, if I'm saying that right, right? Hawaka? Yeah, Hawaka. Hawaka. Or anywhere near it. And so for the next several months, they uh, Coronado's expedition occupies Hawaka. And they plan their next move. So think about that. They're, so you got all this livestock. You got all these new people. It's making a big dent on the food supply. So then one day, representatives from the Picos Pueblo travel to Havaca to speak with Coronado. Probably because this moron Spaniard is disrupting the trading network, <laughs> right? And so yeah. ironic, huh, that in a quest for riches, Coronado disrupts the trading and riches of others. This bumbling dipshit and his, like, <laughs> all these poor people who are, like, stuck traveling with this asshole. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, where's your fucking gold? Where's the gold? Why don't they speak Spanish yet? What the fuck? And what happens next is going to be... um. It's going to be a pattern. So the representatives of the Picos Pueblo peoples offer to guide Coronado and his expedition east to, to more wealthy tribes. So these uh, Pecos Pueblos are like, yeah, man, just go east. There's more, there's, uh, more wealthy uh, tribes over there. So this is quite fascinating because it begs the question, why are the Pueblo, Pecos Pueblos helping Coronado? And two reasons that I found is, uh, one... Perhaps Coronado and his expedition's military prowess can protect the Pueblo's peoples from raiding tribes to the east. Um, and Coronado brought some interesting things to trade to these Native Americans that they never seen before, like horses. Like uh, a lot of these tribe, a lot of these uh, tribes that they encounter, or indigenous peoples, I should say, 
think of horses as like big dogs. <laughs> like, we never seen these people before. And uh, they got still sheep. You know, this is so fascinating to me, seeing these two cultures uh, not clash, but like meet like this, I guess. Yeah, the interaction and the exchange of cultures. Like, hell yeah. Like, imagine you never saw a horse before, right? Mm-hmm. You'll be like, what is that? Is that a big dog? And horses are fucking big. Horses yeah. are massive animals. Dude, I remember I seen some horse, some wild horses, right, on uh, in, in the outer banks of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I seen this Mustang, a male horse, and he had like three females with him. First thing I was thinking, though, was like, damn, that's a big schlong. <laughs> the other- <laughs> that's your first thought? It was like, damn, that horse dick, though. <laughs> Second thing I was thinking is, dang, that's a wild horse. Like... They would probably kill me if I went up to it or something. <laughs> Imagine if I didn't see that, you know, before. <laughs> These, yeah, horses tower over you. Hell yeah, man. This is, oof. Um, and so, Coronado, um, he stays in Hawaka, but he sends out these mini expeditions, these, like, scouting parties to explore multiple routes uh, in search for gold and wealthy indigenous peoples. And then what's interesting to me is one of these many expeditions or scouting parties led by Pedro de Tovar goes northwest into Arizona where he reaches the Hopi Pueblos. And Tovar and his scouts are denied entry into the Hopi Pueblo. And as you can guess, they force their way through. But again, they find no gold and no wealthy riches, no, no fantastic riches. Why? Why? <laughs> And so Coronado continues to send out these scouting parties to explore. And one of these scouting parties was led by this dude named Garcia Lopez de Cardenas. And de Cardenas, he was tasked by Coronado to find the Colorado River. And so uh, de uh, de de Cardenas was led by Hopi guides to the Grand Canyon. And uh, this dude becomes the first european to see the grand canyon at least that we know of in recorded history so, yeah yeah that's pretty cool it's like damn um, this shit's big yo <laughs> like where like we're gonna need a bigger boat <laughs> and so um another one of these scouting or mini expeditions as i like to call them is this dude named hernando de alvarado he's sent east by coronado to go to the Pue- to go with the Puecos Pueblos. However, Alvarado finds several villages along the fertile Rio Grande River, Rio Grande River. He notices the farms and the food that the if I'm saying this right, Tigo? Tigua. Tigua. Is it Tigua? Tigua. Tigua. So he notices the food and the farms that these Tigua or Kua, uh, hmm. what's that word? Kwawa. I think it's Kwawa. Ku- yeah, Kwawa. All right. Sorry, we're a bunch of gringos over here. So this dude, Alvarado, he notices the farms and the food that the Tigua and Kwawa Pueblos have. And when Coronado finds out, his eyes get wide and he decides to take over the Tigua Pueblos in order to feed a starving expedition because they're eating up all the Zuni Pueblos food supply. All right. So. Like human locusts. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, human locusts. (laughs) And and man, them livestock, dude, they eat a lot more food than people. 
Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. You got them cattle. horses, them livestock. Yeah. Well, hold on. What are the cattle even eating, right? They eat grass. Yeah. Is there, is have, there grass in like this area? Uh, Probably not a whole lot. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Jeez. If anything, like if there is, they're probably not well familiar where to find it. The Spanish anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, the native people, yeah, they got this shit taken care of. But you also don't see yeah. them with like giant herds of pigs. Uh, an old world animal or yeah, an old world, yeah. cows, um, shit like that. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, you may, may be like, what do you mean by old world? Pigs, cattle, those were things that were not found in the uh, Americas at the time. Those were things that came from Europe with the Spanish and the other Europeans across the Atlantic Ocean. And so... Yeah, man. So these indigenous Americans, they never seen horses. They never seen pigs. They never seen cattle. And they're like, what the heck is going on? What is this? Whew. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see how these, how over the centuries they eventually like incorporate them into their own daily life. And it, it happens really quickly too. Um, especially, oh. especially with horses because they learn pretty quickly that Oh, these things, uh, these big giant animals offer like a huge advantage in warfare and other stuff too. Yeah, yeah and this is like the, the early time, like 1500s. Uh, yeah. So Coronado, he reasons, he reckons that the Tigua Pueblos would serve as an excellent winter camp for his expedition. So in the fall of 1540, he leads the bulk of his expedition into the Tigua communities. And this fool, you know what he does? He plays landlord and he evicts the people of the Tigua Pueblos. And he sets up a military base. So he's like, get out. It's my town now. And he renamed the Pueblo of the uh, Tigua peoples Kofor. Kofor. I think Kofor. It looks like Kufor. Kufor? Yeah, Kufor. Yeah, what a stupid sounding fucking name. Yeah, Kufor. And then Coronado, not only this, not only is he a victim, but he tells them and he demands supplies from the Pueblos around Kufor and the neighboring Pueblos. He want, he demands supplies from them and he even trades with them sometimes, too. And he keeps demanding more and more. However, the Pueblos around the area can spare no more winter is coming and they needed it themselves to survive so it's what getting, happens next huh it's getting pretty bleak you know like how i said they just come in like human locusts yeah um, yeah they can speak they can talk you know and tell people what to do yeah so so yeah. uh coronado he tells his men to basically do whatever they need to do to get supplies and survive. He tells them to take anything they need by force. So unrestrained, Coronado's men still kill, destroy, and even rape on some instances. So think about this too. Like It's not just the men that need the food. It's the livestock. 
So the so these like you said the locusts man they're a drain on the resources you know these welfare king and queens they're a drain man the they want free shit the Spanish Empire welfare queens yeah <laughs> they could just go up into an area demand stuff from the pueblos government <laughs> isn't that basically what a conquistador essentially is a fucking like a mooch. <laughs> give me your shit and give me it now. And if you got gold, I'll take it right now. <laughs> Stop. It's like we can't. They not stop. Nothing move but the money. So when Coronado told his men to take whatever they want by they need by force, this begins the Tiqua War, a brutal war crime inducing conflict. The Tiwas pueblos around the area retaliate against the Spanish abuses of their people and resources. So it's on like Donkey Kong and the T and the Tiwas peoples kill the expedition's horses and the mules, which interests me because notice that they're not attacking the men yet in Coronado's expedition. That seems very strategic. Yeah. And so Coronado responds to these actions of the Tiwas Pueblos by declaring war using the terms fire and blood. So, it's like an anime now, man. It's like total fucking war at this point. And so, he sends some of his men to the Tiwas Pueblo village, Arenal. If I'm saying that right, Arenal? Arenal? Mm -hmm. And so, these Spanish soldiers slaughter all of the Tiwas warriors in that Arenal uh, village or town... And they even burned some of these Aranol people at the stake. Some of these Tiwas peoples in Aranol at the stake. So it's right. It's like holy war. Whenever you use fire, it's holy war. <laughs> so yeah. when the Tiwas abandon their village and take refuge on a Mesa top stronghold, a siege occurs. So pause right here because if you don't know what a Mesa is, it's a, an isolated flat topped elevation. And so um, how would you describe it? Uh, a mesa? I yeah, mean, a mesa. Like, I don't... It's not really the same thing as a mountain. Um, oh, no, it's more... It's it's like, it's like a mountain, but flat. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it could yeah, be yeah. a hill. It could be a ridge. Um, yeah. Uh, it can... It's just basically flat-lying sedentary rocks capped by layers of, of layers of harder rock and sandstone and shale and other stuff and yeah it kind of creates this fairly flat surface on the top of it like um you can find mesas in iraq you can find mesas in australia you can find them in israel and um you can find them literally well colorado too of course like you know monument valley have you heard of that one no, no. Yeah, uh, there's like a big mesa and there's some foilage. Like, I'll show you a picture. It's in the borders of the Navajo Nation. Here's a big old picture of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah it looks prettier than a mountain because of the flatness at the top. Yeah, and the fact that it actually is home to some vegetation. Like, cool. so, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, thing of. Uh, geography, I guess you could say. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, so that's the kind of place that they're kind of held up at this point. Yeah. And the Spanish call this uh, this mesa that the Tiwas are in 
Moho. <laughs> Moho. Moho. And so, um, but the important point is that Moho gives the Tiwas the high ground, which in warfare is ideal. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result of having the high ground, Coronado had a lot of difficulty breaching Moho. So, a long siege occurs from January 1541 to March 1541 as the Spanish try to take it. And so, the problem is, though, the Tiwas eventually run out of water and food. And they attempt to escape in the dark of night. But it does not work. Because guess what? Coronado's men slaughter the Tiwas, men and most of the women, with ruthless mercilessness. No mercy. And the women they do not kill, they remain slaves for the remainder of the expedition. And of course, we all know what was done to them. It shall remain unspeakable because it's an unspeakable crime. Nafos in Latin, unspeakable. And the Tiwas community was devastated, but they continued to wage guerrilla warfare intermittently from these messes against the expedition. So... Do you, think, do you think this is a good spot to kind of conclude here? Because we're in like okay. the year, the years 1541, 1542. Yeah. Well, we're still in March 1541. So yeah, we can conclude right here. And um, in conclusion, I think the next paragraph would be an excellent way to start. Yeah. This expedition got fucking dark. Um, it's very yeah. You know what the Spanish are doing, and yeah, this, absolutely, yeah, to the Pueblo peoples. Um, so, in conclusion, I think let's pause right here for some historiography. Let's let, let's talk about historiography, which means the writing of history. So, while learning about Coronado's expedition, I used multiple sources, and one of these sources was uh, NewMexicoNomad.com. Another was the Wikipedia article about Francisco Vasquez de Coronado and a Wikipedia article about the Togua War. And another was the History.com article about Coronado. So, look at what History.com says about the Tigua War. Mm -hmm. Quote, starting the quote, Coronado's reunited expedition spent the winter of 1540-1541 on the Rio Grande at Quawa near modern-day Santa Fe. They fought off several Indian attacks and in the spring of 1541 moved to Palo Duro Canyon in modern-day Texas. Unquote. Hmm. Oof. Kind of fucking sus. I have problems with that writing of history. So they fought off several Indian attacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically that's true, but... They weren't so then the Native Americans weren't the ones that were that started this. No, <laughs> this is as we can see self defense at this fucking point. Absolutely, like, like we've we've encountered this before, you know, this shitty historiography, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. Also from history.com, uh, no, regarding history.com. Yeah, it was from history.com and our um it was either our Jamestown or our uh No, I think it was the Jamestown episodes 
where we talked about, you know, slavery and how they described the, you know, slavery in Jamestown. You know, how the, like, slaves, oh, you know, they just showed up. They arrived. They oh, yeah, brought there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was the history one. I think it was another one. I think it was, like, from the jamestown.org or something. Maybe it was from jamestown.org, but I think they both serve as just terrible fucking example like terrible but prime examples of how problematic historiography can be exactly yeah and i guess the point that i'm trying to say is that when we want to learn about like some event or person etc in history let's make sure to use multiple sources especially if you are learning uh online learning from online sources uh and perhaps the best way to learn about history is old-fashioned books especially with multiple citations and sources um, and when we go online, um, let's not just use one source out there, y'all. And so in preparation of this podcast, I made sure to compare and contrast multiple sources, not just one, two, but like six, seven to try to find like agreement to piece together the p- places that other sources are not talking about. So, mm. I guess that's my conclusion. <laughs> I would agree to that conclusion. Um, my only add-on to that would be don't rely on the history.com for shit. It's fucking garbage. And <laughs> I was actually looking up who owns it. Um, so it's owned by A&E Networks. And it's a joint venture between a company called Hearst Communications. Um, wasn't this the same Hearst company that used to be a newspaper that... that ch- one Hearst, the guy who basically started, you know, like anti-marijuana lobbying. Oh, but was that real? William Randolph Hearst? William Randolph? Um, let me see. Chief, he was the uh, son of George Hearst, who was like the founder of it. Um, William Randolph Hearst, that motherfucker. Yeah. And it's also a jo- the other partner is Disney. Disney General Entertainment content division of the walt disney company oh man i don't know when they signed on to this but yeah check your fucking sources no matter what the source is just i didn't know that about disney man yeah didn't surprise me they're like an octopus they got their nose their arms and everywhere and so next week y'all um what will be going on is we're going to finish the coronado exposition and then we're going to get into the juan anyate Anyate. That sounds so cool, but he wasn't cool. So we'll get into the the Juan de Anyate expedition. And that'll set up a good backdrop to the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Sounds good. And until then, I want you all out there to check out our YouTube channel, Ministry Modest. Um, yes. Check that out. Give check. us some views, likes, subscribes. Tell us you like us. Send us some, you know, like bots that will spam Bitcoin stuff in our comment section. <laughs> um, do that. But also make sure to follow us on Twitter at Ministry Modus. Yes. Or you can email us at martinandcornbread at gmail.com. All one word. But you're most likely going to get a quicker response if you reach out via Twitter. At Ministry Modus. So... Preach. With that said, Martin, 
Do you have a rhyme that you want to conclude this episode with? Oh, my rhyme is all on time because I have nothing left to say. My mind is at the top of my spine. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's technically true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm actually looking at our Gmail right now. It's, it's probably full of like Reddit notifications or some shit like that. <laughs> uh, hold on. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. That's not our Gmail. That's my Gmail. Oh. I'm not even looking at the right Gmail. No, it's filled with ex-church. <laughs> ex-church emails? <laughs> Where did the Bible come from? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe history.com <laughs> can tell us. I doubt they're really going to get into the uh, scholarly work of that. <laughs> but that said, thank you for joining us once again for part one of the Pueblo Revolution or the Pueblo Revolt. All right, folks in podcast land. Toodaloo. Out.